to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Some years ago, many years ago now it would have to be, there was a conference wherein the participants were discussing the question, what makes Christianity different from other religions? Good question to discuss. You might want to take that with you into your Bible study sometime. What makes Christianity unique? And uh, some suggested one thing, some another thing, and the discussion grew heated. Then C.S. Lewis came, and he came in late, and he asked what the rumpus was all about. And when he learned that it was a debate about the uniqueness of Christianity, he immediately responded, ah, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Excellent book written by Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he says, I believe that dispensing God's grace is the Christian's main contribution. Well, at the very least, grace does set us apart. I'm not going to say that it is the especially uh, what's unique about Christianity, because there are a lot of things, right? The resurrection of Christ, of course, and his death on our behalf. But the moment that I talk about his death on our behalf, I'm into grace, right? You know? And so grace, in terms of living the life at least, it's, it's, a, it's a good decision to take, that that's what especially sets us apart. Certainly in terms of how we begin the Christian life, it's all of grace but it's also what we're called upon in living the Christian life. One of my favorite books, maybe my favorite book in the Bible, I'm glad I don't have to choose, but certainly the Gospel of Luke is a favorite. And uh, there's so much about grace in the Gospel of Luke. And so for, uh, as a series of messages, I want to choose different passages in Luke to speak from. And uh, many of them would certainly qualify under the heading, Surprised by Grace. Now, I realize that in our setting, in our culture, grace has been so familiar, become so familiar. I don't know that there's a Christian song that is more popular and more often sung by the world at large than Amazing Grace. 
So we're, we're so used to it, and I'm not sure people really understand it when they sing it, but we're, we're used to the concept of grace. And so perhaps there's nothing in Luke that would surprise us about grace, because we're used to it. But think in terms of the people that were there. And so many occasions, it was something unlikely that happened. And that's true, even what Jesus is teaching here in this parable. As a great teacher, Jesus often used sharp contrast in order to make his point clear. And of course, we do that today, right? Effective way of teaching. Contrast. Think, for example, about the uh, wise man and the foolish man. The one built his house upon a solid foundation, and the other one, well, he was foolish, and he built his house upon the sand. Sharp contrast. Uh, I think about the uh, rich man and Lazarus. I mean, it wasn't just the one had, you know, was able to take care of himself nicely, and the other one not quite so, but you have such an extreme there, such an extreme contrast. The one was living lavishly, and the other was trying to even get the crumbs from the table of the rich one. And so here it is again, contrast. And uh, here Jesus talks about two men in his parable who go up to the temple to pray. Uh, and uh, they're a contrast both in who they are and in how they pray. First one, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a religious party within Judaism. They numbered only a few thousand, but they were highly influential, and they were highly respected by the common people. And they were staunchly committed to God's laws. And at the very center of their religious system was separation. They separated themselves from everything that was evil, including people that they considered evil. And so the Pharisee prays in a way that reflects his religious life, an exemplary way of life. A good living man, uh, faithful to his spouse. He has never broken any of the commandments, that is outwardly the main commandments, He's a person very dedicated to his religious duty. He fasts twice a week, and that wasn't even required. That was going beyond what was necessary. And uh, it was only practiced twice by the most pious uh, Pharisees. Uh, he gave 10% of everything and went beyond that. It says everything. That probably means that he even a tithe out of the things that he was able to buy. And so we have here a good living, exemplary man. Today it could be said of such, you know, a man of good character, safe neighbor, faithful husband, a person very dedicated to his religious duty, never skips church, never forgets his offering, even when on vacation. Leah, you'd appreciate that. We want that kind of a churchman. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the kind of person that every church needs and wants. And it's the kind of person you would trust with your wallet or even the keys to your house. How about the other man, tax gatherer? Uh, at the time, Palestine was an occupied territory. 
It was virtually under military rule by the Romans, and the citizens were forced to pay uh, taxes to a regime that they loathed and to a nation whose way of life was an abomination to them. And these tax collectors, they were fellow Jews collecting from their own people for the hated Romans. And the taxes were exorbitant, they were unjust, they were a form of extortion, and often these tax collectors would use the wealth to feather their own nests. And so we can understand that these tax collectors were despised among their own Jewish people. So the second man that is praying that day in the temple, he's a social outcast. In the eyes of fellow Jews, he's an ally of the enemy, despised. And his prayer (laughs) reflects who he is. Nothing to commend him before God. And so in contrast to the other, He offers thanks not for his favorable way of life, but he dares to say only one thing, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now if Jesus were teaching us here in Canada the same parable, I mean if he were to script a parable for us that had a similar lesson, I wonder who would make it into his picture instead of the Pharisee. A dedicated church person, maybe? Churchman? Maybe even a Baptist? Someone highly respected among his fellows and among his fellow church members. And uh, very dedicated. Maybe a generous philanthropist. But it would be somebody that we had a high regard for. And instead of the tax collector, well, maybe, maybe he would, <laughs> maybe he would uh, uh, make him a tax collector. I don't think we particularly appreciate tax collectors. But uh, maybe it would be somebody who uh, broke his marriage vows over and over again. Maybe it would be a pimp. Maybe it would be a drunkard. Maybe it would be a gay man dying of AIDS. It would be someone despised in our establishment. Certainly somebody marginalized. Maybe an ex-con that we're not comfortable having around us. I don't know. But he would make the contrast somehow. And so we want to ask the question here as I get into my outline, but before I do, why is it that one so despised and so non-religious in his routine comes out better And how can it be that someone so meticulous and conscientious about the details of his religion and going even beyond the requirements could so fail to meet God's approval? Was God not pleased that he avoided adultery and extortion, as he says there, you know? Was he not pleased that he gave generously to the work of the Lord? Was God unhappy that he was so zealous about his religion? And, you know, that that can't really be because these were good things in themselves. And surely we today are better off if we are conscientious and zealous about things related to our faith and that we go beyond the minimum requirements. 
Or maybe, maybe, maybe it was just a ritual for him. Maybe it wasn't something that uh, was important to him. Maybe it was mechanical, but I, I don't get that sense. He's in it. His heart seems to be in it. Why then? Why was it that one so despised, so unlikely, surprised by grace, came out better? I think it calls for an explanation. And so we're going to want to frame my thoughts around the three C's here. There's the confidence factor. There is the comparison factor. And then the contrition factor. But beginning with the confidence factor, note the occasion for Jesus telling this parable. He tells it, it says in verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Confident. That's what prompted him telling this parable. And uh, of course, again, here you see such a contrast. I mean, the tax collector, confident, anything but. He's a picture of dejection. But the Pharisee, on the other hand, no hesitation, no standing off in the background, no sense of dejection, no hint of unworthiness. He, his prayer simply oozes out with confidence. Confidence. Well, what about it? Is confidence a problem? See, I, I don't think so. And I'm thinking about our responsibilities. Uh, I'm sure these musicians here would say that if I'm going to do a good job playing my instrument, I need to have confidence. And I think about that when I'm driving a car. Uh, we've had occasion to use a taxi lately, and we happen to live in a place where, my goodness, for $10 we can go almost any, any place within the city because we're so centralized. But I don't think I'd like to ride with a taxi driver who is not confident. You know? Confidence. Good thing. And even spiritually, there's a basis for confidence. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray to God as Abba Father. Prayer of a sense of intimacy, a, a prayer of assurance, the kind of, uh, kind of way that a child would address his father. Sounds like confidence to me. And then I think of the book of Hebrews, where we are called, it says in, the, in the chapter 10 there, come boldly into the throne of grace. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith. There are scriptures that indicate that we can have confidence that we belong in God's presence. And uh, we have penned this, expressed this in our, many of our old hymns. My uh, father-in-law, uh, according to Earth's calendar, is now 117 years old, and he's been with the Lord for a long time. But his favorite hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Sounds like a good kind of confidence. Or uh, how, about, how about this one? Whatever be tied, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. No, the Pharisee's problem wasn't that he had too much confidence, but it was the reason 
for that confidence. It was the basis. Notice what it says, uh, to those who were confident of their own righteousness. That was his problem. Confident about the wrong thing. Or the way RSV has it, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Misplaced confidence. He apparently assumed that his good years or his many years of good conduct, his careful observance of his religious duties, it was, they were like a password for him into the presence of God. Nothing to do with God's mercy or grace or love or forgiveness, but everything to do with his own conduct and merit. His confidence was tragically misplaced. Well, how about the comparison factor? says that he told this parable to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And NIV here seems almost a little mild. Other translations have like viewed others with contempt or regarded our others with contempt. New Living Translation really is graphic about it. It says that those who had great self-confidence and scorned everyone else. And listen to this note of comparison in his prayer. I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even, even like this tax collector. His misplaced confidence led also to his favorable comparison, looking down, minimizing, uh, trivializing others. He was dismissive of others. He's so high up in his self-delusion that the only way he can look at others is downward. The only way. I think it's very interesting and significant here how uh, this par- the occasion for this parallel, it puts these two together, a high view of self and a low view of others. They, they belong together, confident of their own righteousness, look down on everyone else. And, uh, you know, it's, it, those two go together. It's like two sides of the same coin. If I really see myself up here, it means I'm seeing other people below me can't be helped. The pride of self-righteousness will inevitably be accompanied by an unfavorable evaluation of others. The two together, part of the same sordiness. But you know, I think they work both ways. I think it's easier to see that if I have this very high view of myself, I'm going to be kind of looking down at other people. But I think the other is also true, that when you start to or if, if you are reflecting negatively about others, it probably means that you are putting yourself up. And instinctively, we react that way. Uh, I, I'm sure you've been part of this. If you haven't said it, you have thought it. Somebody is really critical, okay, of somebody else. The first thing we say, well, but you're not perfect either, right? You know, it's kind of like that. It's almost like if I'm negative about someone here, it probably means... Uh, you know, people think it means at least I'm putting myself a little bit higher. They go together. And from there, where you look down on others, you look at yourself up here and you look down on others, it's a short step to being preoccupied with their failures and blind 
to my own failures. Charles Schultz, a cartoonist, was also a Christian, and he left a pretty good legacy. And in one of his strips, he has Linus, his security blanket in place, his thumb resting safely in his mouth, but he's troubled. And he asks Lucy, and he says, why are you always so anxious to criticize me? Her answer, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. And then he says, and, and what about your own faults? And without hesitation, she says, I have a knack for overlooking them. Exactly. <laughs> I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the others with all their faults and all my merits. Comparison. In pride, comparing himself favorably to others. Misplaced confidence. Saw himself as above the others. But then the key factor that made the difference, the contrition factor, both of these men were sinners. Both were held responsible for their sins. But the Pharisee disqualified himself from really meeting with God that day because he appealed on the basis of his own qualifications. His password into the presence of God was, I, I, I. I thank you that I... I'm not like others. I do this. I do that. I've been able to avoid this. I've been able to avoid that. I, I, I. And the other one, he didn't offer a single claim of merit. He could only express, God, be merciful to me. And his identity? A sinner. A sinner. He shunned pride and he appealed purely on the basis of God's mercy. Contrition. And of course, the broader quality here and the two qualities really are humility and pride. Humility is remembering that you have a beam in your own eye. In every situation, remember what God knows about you and how much you have been forgiven. Humility. And that's how our salvation works. We're justified, we're forgiven, we're acquitted when we come to him as a sinner. A sinner pleading for mercy rather than offering him any merit of our own even as we sing nearly 2,000 years later and we're going to sing it in a few minutes nothing in my hands I bring but safely to the cross I cling or how about this one my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy lean on Jesus' name. I think it's interesting that this parable is, it's in, it takes place in a setting before Jesus died for the sin, so that isn't even mentioned there. But that attitude of needing grace, that posture of saying, I'm a sinner, was needed then even as it's needed now. And it's a principle of being aware of our shortcomings and it doesn't end at the point of our commitment to Christ. But we continue 
to have that posture, we come before him saying that nothing in my hands I bring. I don't have any merit of my own. And I'm trusting only in what you have done for me and your provision. In fact, both biblically and historically, it tends to be those who are the most advanced on their faith journey who are most aware of sin in their life. I think that's generally true. Philip Yancey quotes a Catholic father to that effect, and this is what he said, it is the saints who have a sense of sin. It's the saints who have a sense of sin. The sense of sin is the measure of a soul's awareness of God. I think that's true. And so though we walked with the Lord for 50 years, we still come into his presence saying, nothing in my hands I bring. The parable calls us all to humility. No confidence in my achievement, Lord. No better than anyone else, Lord. And on the basis of your grace alone, I come to you. Now you say, yeah, but, you know, we're evangelicals. We're, we're Baptists. And we know all that. We understand grace. We will never make the mistake of saying to God, I'm so thankful that I can come to you because of the good person I am. Look at my resume. No, I'll never say that. We know better. And yet there are ways that we too can be proud. Proud of our dedication. Proud of our accomplishments. And believing somehow that that gives us a bit of an edge. Or proud because we've never done any of those big sins. Or proud maybe that we have a better belief system. Even proud of our stand on grace. Which would be a contradiction, but it's possible. Oh Lord, I'm so glad that I'm not one of those who is working for his salvation. I know the scriptures. I know I'm saved by grace alone. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those others. But you see, God looks on the heart. It's one thing to understand we're saved by grace. It's another thing to have a heart that fully depends on grace. Think of little children. I think it's significant that in the next paragraph, uh, Jesus is describing that we have to be like little children. You know, they know that they're not self-sufficient. They don't have any problem receiving the contribution from mom and dad and being dependent on mom and dad. It's not so much a conscious understanding as it is a leaning. And that's why I think we have to look for the possibility that we might even be, we might be even proud of the fact that we stand on grace and grace alone. It is a contrite heart that God will not despise. Better to be weak in our understanding of grace with a humble heart before God than to have it all down pat and feel extra confident because of it. An awareness, an awareness that however faithfully we have served him, however correct our understanding, we dare to stand before him on the basis of his grace and mercy alone. And that's for us too. Last part of the paragraph for all those who exalt themselves, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So when we come to the table, 
we come without any claim whatsoever of our own, but only that he has made provision and that he invites us. And we can even think of coming to a supper that has been fully prepared for us. Give us this day our daily bread. It's all provided for us. It's all of grace. Here's a reading that is often read in the context of communion. Come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, because, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy 